Hello, welcome to the Truth About Cars podcast. My name is Tim Deedley. I'm the managing editor of the Truth About Cars, ttac.com, so that's ttac.com, or the Truth About Cars, all spelled out.com. Today we're talking about the Chicago Auto Show, the 2023 Chicago Auto Show with Robbie DeGraff and Tom Appel. I would like to introduce you gentlemen. You guys can say your proper titles too. Tom, you, why don't you go ahead and start? Sure. I'm Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive and host of the Car Stuff podcast. And Robbie? Yeah, I'm Robbie DeGraff. I'm an industry analyst with Auto Pacific. Excellent. So let's talk about the 2023 Chicago Auto Show. And I want to pick your brains and get you guys first overall impressions. And we can also talk about the three big debuts that happened at the show. Uh, Tom, why don't you start? Wow. I, I guess I was most impressed by how normal the show felt. Uh, it has. If you're local and you go to the Chicago Auto Show, you know that the last couple of years they've contracted down to using just one hall. Uh, and they're back to two halls now and about a million square feet of space, which sounds impressive. And it looks impressive. That's a lot of space. And manufacturers who had ducked out in the last couple of years are back, which is nice to know, too. Robbie, what do you think? Yeah, I thought it was great. I uh, definitely echo what Tom would say. It definitely felt like kind of the the, the Chicago show before the pandemic. Uh, this yeah. year, th- this year they've expanded to two halls, and I I had a blast. And the show's going on now through I believe Sunday or Monday next week, and a uh, lot of great manufacturers are back. There's a bunch of test tracks that people can go for rides in cars, whether it be an EV or a gas powered car. You know, auto. Auto shows still remain a critically important tool for consumers who are both like in the market for a new vehicle and just, you know, people that want to go out and see some new cars. Uh, it's, a, it's a great way to go and experience new product up close and personal without having to, to, to feel rushed into making any big decision. It ends on Monday this year. It traditionally used to close on Sundays, but I believe they mm-hmm. I don't remember what year it was, but they did, they did expand to Monday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and my thoughts too, um, I also kind of thought like what, like what Tom said that it felt normal, uh, almost a step back in the right direction. I, you know, Chicago lost thunder over the years, well before COVID. I've been doing this since the late 2008 or 2009, somewhere around there, the late aughts. And uh, even then, you know, the show had always kind of lost thunder compared to Detroit, New York, and LA. And then last year, I, I last year's LA show was a little bit kind of down, but not too far down. There were still there were four or five debuts, I think. And this this show had three major debuts, which is pretty good for Chicago, the most I can remember in a while. So it's it kind of shows to me that uh, there's a little bit of bounce back here. Yeah, there's a little bit of bounce back, too. And, and I'm wondering, and this is slightly off topic, but I'm wondering, too, as we see the rise of EVs being retailed through uh, a non-showroom experience, if auto shows are actually going to become, and this is counter to popular theory, that auto shows are going to become more important because this is where you can go to see the cars if, in fact, manufacturers are going to be uh, maintaining smaller smaller inventories at dealerships or, or, many, or retailing direct to the consumer. Well, I've long thought that, that auto shows, when people say auto shows don't matter anymore, I think that just, to me anyway, I think that just means the media I think consumer yeah. for the consumer side, auto shows will always matter because you can car shop without being harassed by a dealer. And if you're in a place like Chicago, it's something to do indoors in a, in a month that's typically very cold. So I think for consumers, auto shows will always matter. I think for the media, that might change as more and more automakers decide to do off-site debuts to capture more and more of the news cycle. I, I would agree 100%. And I think it's I think it's definitely important that you know people in the 
the, the media side or the analyst side realize that, you know, these shows are for the public, you know, that's exactly what they're, they're intended for. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, kind of going with, what Tom was saying about how as EVs become more and more prevalent, you know, I feel like auto shows, you know, not only are they a great place to, you know, sit in one and go for a ride in one, but especially at the Chicago auto show, you had a couple other, uh, it was a space where vendors were able to come and set up some of their actual like public charging stations. So, you know, these consumers can not only, you know, sit in like a VW ID4 or a Chevy Bolt, but they can go and walk up and see what like a level three charging station sound looks like, or learn about like what it takes to put in a level two charging station in your garage. And that was available at the Chicago Auto Show. You had a couple different companies that had their own, you know, charging infrastructure right then and there for people to experience. Well, I think too, you know, for us in the media, we kind of, at least, my, at least I do, I don't know about you guys. Uh, I sort of ignored the test tracks, right? Because mm-hmm. sure. we get to drive those cars as part of our job. It's not what we're covering on the day that we're uh, at the press days, but the consumers, that's what that's for. It's a chance to get them for chance for them to drive EVs at slow speeds to drive a Bronco or a Wrangler over obstacles with, you know, it's not exactly a real test drive. It's not on public roads. It's slower <laughs> speeds. It's supervised, but you know, that's a chance for consumers to really interact with this technology. And for us, we sort of, it's sort of, we're kind of jaded towards that. And I think it's a perfect example of where the show really shines for consumers, but but doesn't matter as much for media. Yeah. I want to get back to something Robbie said, because it's an excellent point. And I didn't really think about it when I was at the show, but having level three chargers set up there by whomever is a wonderful thing because the whole EV resistance movement is either political or fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. And, and there's nothing we can do about the political side, but in terms of the fear of the unknown, being able to handle a level three charger, see how it works, understand that you have to either sign up for membership or pay by credit card, however that works, that takes all the mystery out of that, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's a great, a great you know, foot in the door for a lot of people because they don't know how that's going to work. Agreed. I think the other thing, too, is that, um, you know, when you have, you know, at the Chicago Auto Show, there are there's a, a gigantic indoor track that, you know, people can go for rides and a handful of EVs around. But the fact that people will also be able to see these EVs charging on the show floor because they're doing I would I mean, I don't know the number, but I would guess they're doing like a couple hundred rides uh, every day or so. And they can see that, OK, you know these EVs can charge up pretty quickly on a level three charger. It's not that difficult to do. Um, and I think just, just the fact too, that, you know, if you do go to an auto show and you're looking at an ice product, but then you walk over to an EV and go for a ride in it and experience like, Oh wow, it's silent. The acceleration is great. And there's a ton of room on the inside and uh, you can get pretty good incentives of it. The fact that an auto show offers a convenient, stress-free uh, place to cross shop, for example, whether it be between powertrains or different types of vehicles or segments, uh, you don't get that outside of an auto show, really. Hyundai had um, the test track running on Media Day 
and, mm-hmm. and the it was the Ionic Five test drive, and I was there. Consumer Guide distributes its Best Buy awards at, at the media day, which means that I'm usually out of the circulation for most of the day. <laughs> but I did spend some time in the in the Hyundai booth, and I was just sort of blown away by watching these cars roll by that were making zero sound. And I'm like, that is a really cool impression. I think that mm-hmm. the public is going to enjoy. The only thing you hear is is the stick of the tires on the on the rough or on the uh, mm-hmm. on the smooth ground, but no noise. It's pretty cool. It is. <laughs> yeah, it actually, it absolutely is very cool. And I actually did a panel yesterday with uh, ABC7 mm-hmm. Chicago, and you really couldn't hear the cars because everything is EV. Uh, shifting gears a bit, let's talk about the debuts that happened here in Chicago. Let's start with the night before the press days, Wednesday evening in uh, the West Loop of Chicago, the Wednesday before the show, Toyota showed off the new Grand Highlander. And I wanted yeah. to pick your guys' brains and see what you thought about it. I um, if if you don't mind, Robbie, I'll just jump in here. Yeah, um, uh, I think the Grand Highlander is is a uh, the shape of things to come. Jill and I talked about this. Jill Seminello, she's my co-host on the on the Car Stuff podcast, talked about this last episode, and I, I think Grand Highlander may be the beginning of a movement where we see mid-sized three-row crossovers offered in two sizes. Um, as we move away from cars, there are less and less choices for people. But I think there's a practicality here. And Grand Highlander looks pretty good, too, right? I thought this was going to be really weird and ungainly. Actually, it's pretty nice looking. And additional third row space probably means a lot to a lot of shoppers. Yeah, I would say that uh, what what makes the, the Grand Highlander really important for Toyota is, you know, they've got – they already have a couple three rows. You've got the Sequoia. You've got the Sienna. I still – think minivans are the best choice for families, but obviously we can't force everybody into a minivan. So where the Grand Highlander comes in, <laughs> yeah, I wish we could, but where the, where, where the Grand Highlander really excels is the fact that if you go to a Toyota dealership right now and you sit in the regular Highlander with three rows, that third row is really, really, really tight. Uh, there's very little leg room. There's very little head room. And it's, it's, I don't even know if I would even call it like a just in case third row. It's 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 super tiny, and where the Grand Highlander, you know, fixes that, it adds six about I think it's like six and a half extra inches of length, uh, so you get a lot more headroom. I'm six foot two, and I was actually able to fit in the back pretty comfortably. Uh, okay. And another area that it I think kind of is a nice benefit for people, especially families, if you know you're hitting the road, is the fact that if you have everybody in all three rows of seats there's still pretty good cargo room behind that third row. That's something we've realized with three row crossovers is the fact that if you're using all three rows of seats and you have that third row upright, a lot of times there's pretty limited space behind that third row to put like a duffel bag or a suitcase, but the Grand Highlander fixes that. I think there's like 21 cubic feet of cargo space now, if I'm reading my notes correctly, like compared to the outgoing like 16 feet. So both from a better third row standpoint and the fact that there's more cargo room behind that third point, third row when you're actually using it, you know, I think that makes it a win for Toyota. Yeah, and you mentioned the Sequoia, which is Toyota's body-on-frame big truck. Mm-hmm. That third row is not especially useful either. So so the, the Grand Highlander does answer, I think, a call or a need that Toyota had that uh, the consumers are probably looking for. I agree. I think, like you guys said, I think having that – uh, extra room in the third row. I think crossovers, three row crossovers, especially were initially 
aimed at families. I think a lot of families realize that sometimes you want to have three couples going to three adult couples going to dinner, right? Or families doesn't necessarily just mean young children. It could also mean elderly parents. It could mean an uncle and aunt, an older child who's almost fully physically grown, you know, a teenager, young adult. So I think, I think uh, there's definitely going to be a movement towards having more room in that third row. Uh, And like Robbie said, minivans are still probably the best for that kind of thing, but because minivans aren't cool, especially if you're uh, my age, uh, we thought minivans were like the worst thing ever because of what your parents drove. I think these crossovers are going to be sort of the um, kind of, kind of the cool alternative to, a minivan, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, Robbie is van crazy, so we have to take that into account. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is that is true. You know, I I I I grew up with minivans. In fact, I think the uh, the, the car I, the car I like spent the most time growing up in and learned how to drive on was a '95 Ford Windsor. That thing was a mess. Um, so <laughs> I I definitely appreciate modern minivans, but you know, while that's obviously I think the best option for a family, you know, when you have a vehicle like it the is. Highlander. Toyota did a good job designing the Grand Highlander to look a lot more uh, kind of like upright truckish compared to the uh-huh. Grand Highlander. Um, I don't know about you guys, but like if you look at photos of the Grand Highlander, if you saw it in person when they revealed it, I get a lot of vibes that the silhouette is, it's almost like a, a, a shrunken down Sequoia. It's kind of got yeah, this like, long, seeing, tall yeah. stance to it. I'm seeing a little tundra in there too, especially looking mm-hmm. at the pictures that I took at the event. The um, the lower fascia is huge, mm-hmm. and it's very uh, kind of in your face, and it comes across more in person. So our, our articles kind of got a mixture of press photos and pictures I took at the event, and it it shows up more in the pictures that I took in person. I think in the press photos for whatever reason, mm-hmm. uh, it's definitely kind of in your face and. There's there is a little more curvature to the overall body. It's not quite as blocky and boxy as the Sequoia or the Tundra, but there definitely is sort of. They don't want to be accused of being uh, effeminate. I don't think. I think they're looking for something masculine with that design. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I actually worried when I heard Grand Highlander and had nothing to look at that it was just going to be a long version of the existing Highlander and yeah. nothing that I put together in my head looked good. So I was <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised to see this because I think it looks better than the uh, than the standard Highlander. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I would I think too that we're going to see um, quite a bit of the styling seen on this Grand Highlander make its way over to the regular Highlander, and I was told that the regular Highlander is not going to offer a third row. So it is mm-hmm. just going to be a two oh. row. This is going to be, uh, yeah, I, I still have needed, need to get full confirmation on that, but I was talking to someone that did say that this grand Highlander is in fact the three row offering and that the other Highlander will be a two row. We'll see if they, if they outright confirm that. But anyways, I think we'll see quite a bit of the styling seen on this Grand Highlander make its way over to the next uh, regular Highlander, which I think is due for a, a redesign within the next year or so. You well, know, that makes I, perfect sense. Mm-hmm. That it does. And, and, you know, I said they were trying to avoid being effeminate, trying to look masculine. I, I, re, I kind of rethought that just in the few, past few seconds. I think what they're really trying to do is look rugged mm-hmm. so they can sell – the idea, because you, you know it's not going to be taken off-road, but they want to give you the, in the marketing probably, I'm just guessing here, they're probably going to market it as something that can take people who have active lifestyles. I'm doing air quotes over here. Active <laughs> lifestyles who, who, you know, go, who go camping and kayaking, canoeing, and all sort of stuff. And 
it can get you to the trailhead, that kind of thing. So they're not going to, you know, we all, we all know, I don't mean to sound cynical. We all know that most Grand Highlander buyers are going to be taking their kids to school and taking it to work, mm-hmm. but they're going to market it as you and you and five or six buddies can hop in the car and go kayaking up down at the lake. And that's probably, mm-hmm. probably why they're going for a little more rugged styling direction. Mm-hmm. Now, do you, do you ever, maybe this is just my problem, but I always feel like a bit of a fraud getting into an active lifestyle vehicle because I'm a guy, <laughs> I get to the health club sometimes, but mostly I sit in the couch and watch gun smoke. So <laughs> Robbie, Robbie goes camping, Robbie goes hiking, Robbie goes to national parks. He's an active lifestyle guy. So it's cool for him. But for me, I still feel like I should be driving, I don't know, like a Crown Vic. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah. I live in the city. Getting out, getting out to the sticks is hard. And, and like, you know, if it's an off-road, off-road vehicle like a Bronco or a Wrangler, and I've got time and an OEM permission, I'll test it out off-road. But something I don't kayak, I don't canoe, I don't have the kind of money for that. I don't live in the right place for that. I don't have the kind of time for that. Maybe if I move to the suburbs or something, but right, not right now at this point of my life. You know my conspiracy theory, right? That that Subaru pays people to drive around with kayaks on top of their cars. <laughs> I had not heard that, but I'm not. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Speaking of Subaru, that's perfect timing. We'll we'll do that. Oh, as a there you go. Segue. Hey. We'll take a quick take a quick little break. Get a drink of water or whatever. Come on, right back to talk about the Subaru Cross Truck. All right, welcome back to the Truth About Cars podcast. We're talking about the 2023 Chicago Auto Show. My name is Tim Healy. I'm the managing editor for the Truth About Cars, along with automotive analyst Robbie DeGraff and fellow automotive journalist Tom Appel. And we are going to discuss the 2024 Subaru Crosstrek, which was shown at the Chicago Auto Show. Um, I want to hear your thoughts. Tom, you went first last segment, so we'll have Robbie start us off. Yeah, so this is a super important product for Subaru. I believe it was their uh, best-selling vehicle in 2022, either that or the Forester. But uh, so yeah, we've seen the new Crosstrek debut overseas a while ago, but we finally got a chance to check it out here at the Chicago Auto Show, um, where it arrives for the 2024 model year. I like it. I'm personally a, a a big Subaru fan. Um, I recommend them all the time. We've had two of them. My family's got them. So uh, I'm all about the new Crosstrek. You know, it's it's rides on like an updated version of its old platform. It's got a little bit like tougher styling. You get that new 11.6 inch uh, big screen in the center console. I think it's a really neat product. And what makes it uh, what makes this new generation? So this will be the third generation of the Crosstrek once it goes on sale. Uh, is the fact that Subaru is actually now going to be building the Crosstrek stateside here at its plant in Lafayette, Indiana. They're actually going to be building some trims with the uh, 2.5 liter boxer four-cylinder here in the U.S., which is the first time they've actually ever done that for that nameplate. Right, right. Yeah, one of the interesting things about Subaru and, and any of its products, really, especially its core four or five products, is that they sell an awful lot of volume with very few models, and they don't mess mm-hmm. with them very much when they update them. And the Crosstrek is that. Mm-hmm. Um, full disclosure, I own a Crosstrek. It's my wife's car. And and we've been nothing but happy with the car except for the power. And that's just a thing you accept if you buy a Subaru. They badly need a turbo, but that's never going to happen for the Crosstrek. But <laughs> I, I think here um, 
they decided not to mess with success. So even though they it's significantly updated, it looks like the same vehicle, and I bet you it's, it feels like the same vehicle. And, and that I think that's just fine with Subaru customers. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think I always have a hard time reviewing a Subaru not named WRX just because <laughs> Subarus are, they are what they are, and they're kind of... They're boring, but boring in a good way. Uh, you know, like you said, they're they're very they're generally safe. They're generally everyone I talk to who's owned one is happy with them. The only issues, like you said, Tom, is a lot of them are down on power unless you're driving a WRX. A lot of them are down on power. Um, the interiors used to feel outdated, but they've kind of caught up with the new interiors with the large screens and they you know they have they have all the uh, features like Apple CarPlay and all that. They're just very practical. Vehicles, kind of boring, but they do what they're supposed to do and they do it well, whether you go outdoors, do outdoorsy stuff or not. So, yeah, I, I think the Crosstrek is one of those things where it's like, it's one of the, the old uh, saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think that's kind of what's happening here. It would be nice to see a turbo. I, I'm a little surprised the hybrid is going away. I, I would mm-hmm. think with the move towards electrification, they would, I, I know the ta- I know they said the take rate was low, but I'm a little surprised that the take rate was low. Um not surprised the manual is going away. I'm surprised the manual hung around as long as it did because it's not a sports car, you know. Mm-hmm. No. But, uh, no, I think it's one of those – I think this is the case of it's not broke. Do not fix it. Just make it a little bit better. The other thing about Subarus too, especially if you're in the snow belt or out in the mountain areas, uh, if, if you have experienced a Subaru in snow, you realize that it is exceptionally good in those mm-hmm. conditions. The, the whole Subaru uh, – what do they call it? Real time? No, they call it uh, symmetrical. Uh, yeah, symmetrical. Yeah, symmetrical. Yeah, it may be a brand name, but there's some tech behind it because it works so well. And I always, I always tell people too, like if you have not driven uh, like a Subaru with all wheel drive, or even like an Audi with the Quattro, where it is like constant, full time, you know, fifty fifty all wheel drive, it is a night and day difference between driving that and say. I don't know, like a Chevy Blazer with all-wheel drive where it's like front-wheel drive biased and then the right. wheels will kick in, you know, 20% if it te- detects water. Uh, yeah, I mean, Subarus are unstoppable in the snow. I've had two of them now, and I've <laughs> never gotten stuck in the snow with them. But one thing I was going to commend Subaru on that I think they just continue to do really well, and I think it shows with the the new 2024 Crosstrek, is the fact that they are specifically – listening and researching who is buying these cars, you know, whether it be, yeah. I mean, whether you're a, a, a birder or a backpacker or a skier, or you just like want something that's like a little bit more just simple. The fa- I mean, they listen to their customers, they design their vehicles exactly, you know, what they're used for, what they're intended for. I mean, just the fact that you can open up a door on a outback or a forester and there's a step plate that's, just a little bit wider so you can comfortably put your foot to put stuff on the roof rack above. I mean, that's just one of the many things Subaru does well is they listen to their target audience of who they're selling these cars to and they execute it with all the right stuff that, you know, people would want. I, yeah, I mean, I'm excited for the Crosstrek. I, I do wish, yeah, the turbo would have came, but um, I doubt there's, you know, obviously there's going to be some people wanting it, but I feel like that majority is pretty, pretty tiny compared to, you know, everyone like, hey, we'll take the 2.0 liter or the 2.5 liter. Um, I don't know about you guys, though. I'm excited if they do, and I'm sure they will, a cross-track wilderness at some point. Oh, yeah. Probably. Got to yeah. be, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a great vehicle for it. It's it's compact enough. It's it's 
you know, it's, it's smaller. It looks, it looks the part, you know, we just need to see the, the full on wilderness, wilderness trim come, which I'm sure will probably be out within the next year or so. I've decided I do have a complaint about this car though. <laughs> Go ahead. The we, the wheel well trim is decidedly weird. Uh, they decided yeah. that it, it can't be round, so they did like a a Toyota BZ4X kind of thing there, where they block off the wheel well openings, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. They did that on WRX too, and it feels like Pontiac during like the very battle days of Pontiac. <laughs> Ouch! Just, oh, man. With the it feels a little unnecessary. Oh, no, it feels like Pontiac. Pontiac was doing that to all their cars for a little while, and it just was. Just not a good look. Uh, mm-hmm. I that's looking at the pictures and looking at the that's one of the few things with the car I think is kind of ugly is is that body cladding. So Tom is kind of spot on there. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I was going to add about the cross track is I just reread the pricing. Uh, the pricing is fantastic. <laughs> the base pricing didn't change at all, and you have to load it to get to the mid thirties. Mm-hmm. You know, the highest trim is like just a little over thirty. I'm not counting destination here. Just a little over thirty, and then you know the premium package or the all weather package is excuse me, is like twenty two hundred bucks. So you're looking at, you're oh, actually I got that wrong. That was for the uh, for the cross track sport. So that'd be right around thirty. A limited is like a little under thirty one. So depending on how you option it out and how how Subaru does that, you know we're talking about a time where average transaction price for new cars is like almost fifty thousand dollars, and you can get into a cross track and get safety, reliability, and utility. And all you're really sacrificing is a little bit of power. Mm-hmm. And, and you can do it for under $35,000, assuming there's no dealer markup. Yeah, and it's a good deal. A car. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good deal. And there aren't that many, off the top of my head, I'm having a hard time thinking of good deals, especially among what you would consider like a regular car, not like a cheap sports car, but like a regular, mm-hmm. you know. And I think if unless you need a third row or have need a lot of space, I think the Crosstrek could be a really good bargain for people. Yeah. Works in our household. Mm-hmm. Well, the fact that the, you know, so a great thing about the cross truck is the fact that at that starting price, which I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's like, it starts at like 24,995 or something. That is okay. correct. Um, oh, I should get a, a, a cupcake for that or something. But <laughs> um, <laughs> the fact that you can get a vehicle that's that capable with a very capable all wheel drive system and, you know, you get the standard eyesight suite of, ADAS safety tech for well under $30,000 is a steal. And that safety suite too is upgraded with this new generation, you know, like the cameras and the sensors have like a wider field of view. So everything's going to work a lot better and respond quicker and keep you safer behind the wheel. So I got to ask, what do you guys think of the grill? Uh, it's like, it reminds me of the Highlander and that they're trying to be a little more rugged and outdoorsy, a little angrier looking. It does look before. angry. It looks angry. Yeah. <laughs> that seems to be a theme recently with a lot of new and refreshed <laughs> vehicles. I don't know if it's because I don't know why it is, but uh I don't I don't hate it. I just it's not it's a little off putting, but it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> That's a ringing endorsement. <laughs> yeah. Backhanded backhanded as it comes. <laughs> Robbie, what about you? Oh, I, I like the – I think the grill looks fine. What I don't really like is the the model that they debuted at the auto show at their um, exhibit area, which was a, a full immersive experience in itself. Um, the model that they showed on the floor was the Crosstrek Sport, um, which has the larger engine and uh, the bigger touchscreen in the center and a couple other goodies. But I wasn't – exactly a fan of the fact that the sport gets those kind of 
faded yellow accents on parts uh-huh. of it, you know, like around the rear front and rear bumpers and along the side. Um, I kind of wish that was either body color or just like more like black plastic molding. I thought the yellow was kind of like a, eh, I could maybe, I, if I had one, I'd probably <laughs> paint it myself or something, but I thought the grill was fine. I just didn't really like those like touches of yellow. Yeah. Those yellow accents, it, it actually made me think it'd be, that would probably work like a wilderness trim, but I'm not sure mm-hmm. it works on the sport. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. In fact, actually that, that's, that's spot on. I would expect that to be on the wilderness, not on the sport. Yeah. All right, that's a, we'll wrap up the Subaru talk, and we'll come back to talk about the final debut of the Chicago Auto Show, which, which kind of ended the media day and um, was a, a little bit of a two-for-one. So we'll come back and talk about the Volkswagen Atlas and Atlas Crossport when we return on the T-Tech Podcast. And we're back in the Truth About Cars podcast. My name is Tim Healy. I'm the managing editor for the Truth About Cars. It's ttac.com or the Truth About Cars, all spelled out, dot com. Here with Tom Appel from Consumer Guide Auto and Robbie DeGraff from Auto Pacific. And we are talking the 2023 Chicago Auto Show. And we're going to talk about the final debut of the Media Days, which was the a two-for-one deal, the Volkswagen Atlas and the Volkswagen Atlas Crossport. And the big news here. Styling-wise, the vehicle doesn't change a whole heck of a lot. The big news is, is the engine changes. So the V6 goes away and is replaced with the turbocharged four-cylinder, two liters, 269 horsepower, and 273 pound-feet of torque. And uh, that has an all, uh, eight-speed automatic for either all-wheel or front-wheel drive, depending on your trim level and all that. And then the other big news is the interior gets more of Volkswagen's haptic touch which we'll discuss in just a minute um <laughs> yeah we you might know where this is going already especially if you're a reader of t-tech and have read my reviews of the the other volkswagens that use this sort of haptic touch interior so robbie and tom i want to hear your thoughts go ahead guys take it away tom um i just want to pause for a moment and say goodbye to the v6 engine because <laughs> it's gone from everywhere it's no longer in 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 the highlander in the lexus rx and now the atlas and it used to be the v6s in, in these particular vehicles were especially smooth mm-hmm. um and and they sort of represented real luxury they were smooth they were fine the power was good and yeah the fuel economy wasn't where it was but two liter turbos are cool but they can be a little cranky, and, mm-hmm. and I'm going to miss that refinement. I will say the power doesn't seem to drop very much. It's only only down about seven horsepower and seven pound feet of torque, so that's not too bad. No, the power's really not going to be the issue. I think it's going to be around town drivability, mm-hmm. smoothness mm-hmm. in terms of being smooth, uh, especially yeah. when cruising. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Robbie, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but I'll, I'll go ahead and rant just a little bit because it's been on my mind for a while. Volkswagen has gone to this haptic touch interior, and I forget off the top of my head which models have it. I believe it's the Golf R and GTI. Mm-hmm. I want to say the Jetta GLI has it too. I was on that drive in, in November 21, and now you know, I can't quite remember. And the ID4. Yeah, the ID4. The ID4 is the most obvious one. I was just about yeah. to say that. Yeah. And the worst one. Oh, absolutely. And, and so <laughs> I'm not... A Luddite, I'm not necessarily opposed to haptic touch. Mercedes actually seems to do it fairly well in their vehicles. Agree. I've seen 
I've had it, I've experienced it in Land Rover and Jaguar vehicles, and sometimes it's okay, and sometimes it's not quite as good. But Volkswagen has done it poorly, <laughs> to to put it bluntly. It's just you're pressing buttons too many times, things don't work. You know, your eyes are taken off the road just to try and adjust volume in the radio or or interior temperature. And voice, and they always say, "Well, okay, if it doesn't work, try the voice activation." Well, that's kind of slow and leggy too. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I'm a big believer that I'm all for trying new things and new tech and, and stuff like that. But I think for volume tuning and temperature control and maybe fan speed, you need to have some sort of knob or slider that's Amen. easy to use. Mm-hmm. Everything else can be kind of goofy. I don't care. But well, as a as a radio user. Too. I really want one for for frequency tuning as well, AM, yeah. AM radio, oh, or, or specifically satellite, where you've got to cross three hundred stations. Agreed, absolutely. Go yeah, ahead, Tom. I didn't mean that. No, no, no. That's fine. Uh, the haptic thing is interesting, and it works pretty well in some cases. Volkswagen's is a little weird, and I'm still mad about the last ID four I drove, simply because. The way Volkswagen does it, and I haven't seen inside the Atlas yet, but there are some buttons that do multiple things, and you don't mm-hmm. know if they're on deck to do the next logical thing or they're going to be dead at that particular moment. So mm-hmm. you end up pressing a button that may or may not do what you think it's going to do next, and that's a little frustrating. And mm-hmm. I suppose if you own a vehicle long enough, you might get used to that, and you might figure it out, but it seems like the learning curve is confusing and long enough that it actually could hurt you on a test drive. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it also comes back to just from, for me, just, I don't want to get into a car accident because I'm trying to figure out how to change the radio. I, I will give Volkswagen some credit that the steering wheel buttons have worked a little better in the have to touch vehicles I've driven, mm-hmm. but the, the, the center console and, and, and infotainment buttons have just not generally worked. And even the touchscreen tiles, which aren't haptic touch, those don't seem to transfer menus very quickly either. The, the, the whole system is kind of buggy and laggy, and it's very frustrating. Well, it's it's what's kind of interesting too is the fact that you know when the Mark Eight Golf GTI and R debuted, which they're fantastic cars. I think Tim and I, you were you and I were both on that drive at Nashville. Yeah, but, I don't believe we were um, in the same wave. I think we crossed paths going in. Yeah, so amazing cars, like absolute go karts. But yeah, the 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 touch haptic approaches. Quite frankly, I think it's a disaster. And Volkswagen has said that they're going to kind of backtrack on it and go back to traditional buttons and dials. But obviously, the refresh of the Atlas came, you know, that was in the yeah, cards. Yeah, too late in the development that. cycle to change it. Yeah. One thing I one thing I do like about the the new Atlas and its cross-sport rival is, or not rival, but its sibling, is the fact that when you look at the Atlas, that vehicle's been on sale for like seven model years now, which, oh, wow. is a, which is a long, long time, especially for a three-row crossover. So they're mm-hmm. really stretching out the length of this vehicle. Um, you know, they're probably going to keep it around another couple of years before an electric replacement arrives, like an ID, I don't know, whatever nomenclature that would be. But um, I really like the fact that the new Atlas Cross Sport in particular really kind of looks like a, a little bit more of like a, approachable Audi Q8 when you look at it. So yeah. if, you take the, if you take the Q8 and you put it right next to an Atlas Crossport, they both have that really, you know, striking full width taillight bar. There's a larger spoiler. I think they did a really good job on the exterior refresh. It's not like too over the top, but they they did just enough to make it a little bit more modern and, you know, a little bit more premium. Cause I feel like both the vehicles were 
definitely <laughs> starting to look a little bit old and tired. Yeah, Robbie. I, 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 oh, go ahead, Tim. Oops, oh, go ahead. I was going to say I agree with Robbie on the exterior looks. I think it is. Uh, I, I thought the previous Atlas wasn't bad looking, and I think this is mm-hmm. a nice refresh to keep it keep it up to date and. Um, it's better than the inside for sure. Uh, go ahead, Tom. What were you going to say? I didn't mean to cut you off. I was going to say almost exactly that, Tim. I think the crossport looks fabulous, especially mm-hmm. in profile. It's got this purposeful, chunky, substantial look, but it still looks a little bit sporty. It's a, it's an absolutely great look for a small crossover. I, mm-hmm. Not small, mid-sized crossover. And I think that, yeah, I didn't realize, Robbie, it's been seven years since this vehicle's been around. Nor did I. Nor did I. Uh, yeah. they, look, they look fresher than they should. Yeah, and yeah. Re- and remember that the the two row Atlas crossports. So if you're listening, you're not too familiar with the difference. But the the Atlas is the three row. The crossport is their mm-hmm. two row kind of like coupe like version of the Atlas. Uh-huh. Um, so the Atlas first launched, I believe, in 2018, and then the Atlas crossport followed up in 2020. So the crossport right. itself is a little bit newer, but the three row Atlas has been around quite a while. Um, this is a little bit of um inside baseball but the cross treks or i'm sorry not cross track the atlas cross sport launch was right before the world shut down it was like february yeah. 2020 i mm-hmm. was on that and i remember like we were hand sanitizing every five seconds and then <laughs> of course things changed but uh yeah the cross sport is a little more fresh yeah good looking car it'll be fine with the two liter turbo too again i'm just going to mourn the passing of the v6 mm-hmm. i agree although but a turbo four cylinder might might be smoother than then then it might be smoother than we expect. So let's hope. I also think just in general, uh, Volkswagen is doing a nice job with exterior styling on their SUV. So it's not just these two, uh, but the Taos and the new Tiguan also look pretty good. No, those are good looking cars. And actually the, it's the, the Taos suffers <laughs> from the same control system, the, the, infotainment and capacitive system we were just complaining about but they all great looking car actually i was wrong though the jetta gli did not get that treatment so it's just the golf and the in the golf r mm-hmm. yeah, I, haven't, I haven't driven it's a jetta in a while baseball. yeah so they, they actually kept the old interior for now and i hope that by the time they redo the next um refresh or redesign that they have decided to go back to volumes go back to knobs and and uh, buttons let's hope. i think the the new the the latest Jetta GLI that I drove is it's actually kind of fun and it still has a manual which makes it even better. Yes, that's it's one of the save the manuals cars. You guys, quick, you guys saw the commercial where the manual was actually it was a joke. Obviously, it was tongue in cheek, but the manual was being described as a safety feature because no one could steal it because no one knows how to drive stick. <laughs> which, that makes which sense. This was I, I don't believe that. Yeah, it's a good ad. Which ad was this? It was a Volkswagen Jetta ad. Oh, I don't know if I've seen that one. Yeah, very funny. <laughs> well, guys, real quick, we're kind of. It feels like we've kind of set our piece on Volkswagen, but we do have a few minutes left. I wanted to just see if if you guys are driving anything unique this moment. Uh, what, what test cars you might be in, and if you want to talk really briefly about that, and then we'll wrap it up. Sure. Um, I have a Kia Carnival right now. So ah, you're which happy. Is, Yes, I'm very, very happy. Right uh, there with Chrysler Specifica for best minivan. Yep, yep, I, I would agree. Um, so I've, I've got a Carnival again. This is my second time with it. Um, it is the, I believe it's the SX. So it's actually got the second row buckets that can kind of like recline like a lounge. Um, I 
Love the Carnival. I think it looks really good. It looks a little bit more like crossover-like than an actual minivan. It's kind of got a little bit more of like a snubby nose and an upright stance. I am planning on taking it skiing this weekend, so I'm anxious to see how that does on a long road trip and uh, dropping the seats and putting all my gear in there. So you're being active lifestyle. Yep, correct. <laughs> so Tom, I think I think what that means is that Kia, I think what that means is that Kia needs to do like a a, a Kia Carnival. Um, what's their trim? Like the X Pro. You know, put some put some all terrain tires on there. Give me yeah. a little bit of suspension lift. Toyota does it with the Sienna. They've got the the Woodland Special or whatever it's called. <laughs> so let's let's normalize outdoor themed minivans. I'm all for that. <laughs> Excellent. And Tom, are you driving anything interesting this week? Yeah, I'm driving the Jeep Wagoneer Series oh. Two L. So this is the new long waist, long wheelbase version of the Wagoneer, and a fairly basic trim level. This is basically the least expensive Wagoneer you can buy that gets the new Hurricane inline six cylinder engine, um, oh. and that's the new three liter twin turbo engine, 420 horsepower in. Wagoneer and it's 500 plus, I think 510 if you get a Wagoneer, a Grand Wagoneer. But this engine is a honey. It's incredibly yeah, it's smooth. smooth meets, mm-hmm. Yeah, it meets very well with uh, um, the Jeep 8-speed automatic transmission. And interestingly, in Series 2 trim, this vehicle sneaks in just under 80 grand. Hmm. So just just under heart attack pricing. Uh, but but <laughs> yeah. That's what these big trucks generally cost. And and I think if there's a value play in the lineup, this is probably it. Excellent. Tom, um, is that is that engine is the because I haven't yet uh tried the hurricane uh engine in that is that pretty quiet? It is shockingly quiet. And and okay. the stop start feature is really good mm-hmm. too. And I think in part that's because it's an inline six. So stopping mm-hmm. and starting is just a little bit smoother. hmm It's it's really interesting how you know inline sixes were kind of the that was the cool engine like a while ago and now they're starting right. to come back you know bmw is using them and jeep's got it and um mazda just debuted that inline six and the cx90 it's it's kind of nice to see this this engine making a comeback so i think it's a yeah i think it's a, a sweetheart of an engine for sure it's interesting too not in the jeep but in almost every other application mercedes and volvo um, the inline six has made it to a mild hybrid. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I don't know why technically that would be a good setup, but it seems to be what people are doing. Yeah, I wonder if it's the packaging of the other like components that would attach to it that would work. It, I, yeah, it that's, that's a great question. I'd be very yeah. curious about that. Excellent. And then just kind of wrapping it up for myself, I I uh, switched cars this morning, so I just got into the Buick. I'm not Buick. I'm sorry, Lincoln Navigator Black Label and. I only drove it around the block, and I felt like an Uber driver just doing that. <laughs> but uh, the car I sent back is something I fell in love with, and it was one of the few times where I'm like, do I really have to get this back? Um, BMW 330i, and it's it's just a four-cylinder. It's oh, not all-wheel drive. Car. But it's, you know what, the four-cylinder, the exhaust is snarly. It sounded like an eight. You know, it's quick. It handled well. And for the first time in a while, I... BMWs have felt heavy to me lately, mm-hmm. and this one yep. felt Agreed. a lot lighter on its feet, both in terms of steering feel and just cornering. And it, it, it's just all just such an all-around great car. And the only thing I don't like about it is I'm looking at the window sticker right now, and it's fifty-one thousand dollars for it, and like, that Ooh. hurts. But it's a forty-two thousand dollars base price. It's nine thousand basically in options, but mm-hmm. uh, I want destination as well. But um, 
yeah, I really did not want to give that car back to the press fleet. No, I almost had to call you, Greg and just like, hey, uh, I'm keeping this <laughs> sorry. But, it's uh, kind it of good to hear that the 3 Series is still what the 3 Series should be. But 50 doesn't seem crazy to me anymore. No, not with the average transaction price being what it is. No, and I do miss the manual, but I, but I understand that battle's probably lost for good. With the, with the oh, it's series. totally lost. But <laughs> you know, the only thing I you know I still wish because those those old manual three series were such a blast to drive. But this yeah. having an automatic didn't really hurt this one all that much. It's still still a lot of fun, and it was also just driven normally, other than a bit of a stiff ride, and it wasn't that bad. It, it really you know some here in the city you feel some of the expansion joints and stuff. But it, you could just drive that car as a daily commuter, and if you never drove it hard, you'd still be pretty satisfied with it. So, Tim, did that car come with, like, an M performance package? That yes, was it did, stiffing? the M Sport package. So it had 19-inch oh, wheels and the okay. adaptive suspension. Yeah. So that so probably that stiffened up the ride. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's also a dynamic handling package, which is separate. That's what's M, oh. M brakes. So if you're going to push the car hard, you'll probably get, you know, brakes will be a little bit better. That is, so that is a three – that package right there, the M Sport package, is three grand, and the – dynamic handling packages in our 1200 so you could sacrifice that get a more comfortable ride if you didn't want to drive the car particularly hard you could sacrifice that and save a little bit under five grand um, so there you go yeah so that that would be if you're never going to drive it hard that'd be a good way to get into one without spending a lot of money did you like uh i drive eight you know i've i didn't use it much because carplay kind of takes over and mm-hmm. i just use carplay for almost everything i was doing uh, I do find in general, iDrive is easier to use than it used to be. Mm-hmm. I still think it could be a pain in the butt, but it's, and maybe this is just years of doing this now, I've become more accustomed to it, but BMW mm-hmm. has also improved it in general, no matter what generation it is, I've found it over the past three to four years, iDrive is much less confounding than it used to be. I feel like it's one of those things. If you own the car, you would be pretty used to it within a few weeks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's a weird way of saying I didn't really use it a lot, but from what little bit I did see, <laughs> it seemed better. But like I said, I was mostly in CarPlay for for navigation stuff. I typically use use CarPlay. So yeah, I remember when they first released the like the very first iDrive on like that seven series, like that whatever generation that like the Banglebutt seven series from like uh-huh. was it, like two thousand three or four or something like that, and that was like the first car with iDrive and I think like the owner's manual was like 4,000 pages long trying to teach people how to use it. And thankfully, thankfully it's a lot easier now. You know, the, the interface is better. The um, controller is easy to use. The controller is easy to use. You can actually use the touchscreen too. If you don't want to mm-hmm. use the controller, I I'm a big fan of iDrive. I think it's, it's as weird as it sounds, it's my favorite infotainment system on a car right now. I remember I, the original iDrive system, and the most baffling thing about it was you had this silver dollar pancake-sized knob that <laughs> rotated both directions, but it, you couldn't use it to to tune the stereo. I'm like, what? That's so weird. You had this, <laughs> and they wanted you to use buttons or to click on something to change radio frequency. I'm like, I have a big knob here. Can I use this? Right. <laughs> My only uh, real beef with iDrive is. And as, as we were talking about with the Volkswagen stuff, there's just not a lot of, there's not enough knobs. So that was one thing that did bother me, especially since uh, the weather's been up and down, is adjusting the heated seats and adjusting the, um, adjusting the, I'm sorry, the heated seats and the heated, not the heated steering wheel, heated seats and just, just climate control in general. I lost my train of thought for a second. So the climate, that has to go into the touchscreen menus. And I really didn't enjoy that um, so much. I, I, 
you know, the only knob is really the volume knob and the iDrive controller. So mm-hmm. adjusting heated seats was kind of so if you want to adjust the temperature, it's easy. There's just a plus minus slider at the uh-huh. bottom of the touchscreen. But going to change heated seats uh, kind of re- required a little bit of menu diving. I didn't like that as much. Heated steering wheel at least was a button on the steering wheel, so it's a little bit easier. But uh, mm-hmm. some of the climate controls require some menu diving. It's amazing how old I've gotten, but if I don't have a heated steering wheel, I'm mad now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't even know where those came from. They just showed up a couple of years ago, and now we (laughs) demand them. Like one of the best new options in the last five years, maybe 10 years. You know, this is is probably a good good trivia question, but what do you think – was the first car to have a production uh, heated steering wheel? Was it BMW or Nissan? Wait, do you know the answer? I don't know the answer, but I think it was oh. it was either BMW or Nissan. Interesting. Like, I, Interesting. I remember the yeah. Max. The Maxima used to offer it like in the early two thousands, I believe. Wow. But I think BMW did it like way further back, like in the nineties. I just that's Tom. You're the trivia master. I'd be curious if you, <laughs> if you could if you could dig that up. <laughs> I'll have to look that up because that's a really good uh, – on the podcast, my podcast, we do a quiz every week. So that mm-hmm. would be a great question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and here's something I never say. Kudos to the Maxima. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for your time. Much appreciated. We're going to go ahead and wrap this up now. Again, this is the Truth About Cars podcast, thetruthaboutcars.com. It's TTAC.com, the truth about cars, all spelled out.com. Thanks again to Tom Appel from Consumer Guide Automotive and Robbie DeGraff from Auto Pacific for hanging out with us today and talking about the Chicago Auto Show. And as always, thank you for listening and thank you for reading. Bye.